Welcome back to Ladder, or not even welcome back. I should say welcome. <laughs> welcome to to uh, Political, Political Misfits. Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We, you know, we were both saying how tired we are today. Yes, we are. And uh, my brain is just not working. It's not working the way it's supposed to. Poor John, his brain is mush. So uh, we should probably get ready to go against the grain. Yeah. I what's, suspect. What's your name, buddy? <laughs> well, my name is not Johnny Depp. No. It's uh, it's John Kiriakou. Mm-hmm. I'm here with Michelle Witte. Hi. And I will confess, after two weeks, that I actually did follow the Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation oh, trial. Oh, you got into it in the end. <laughs> we, we didn't cover it, but I was interested in it um, just because there were so many social implications to it. So the way things ended up yesterday, Amber Heard was found liable for uh, defaming Johnny Depp in a in a Washington Post op-ed. She never named him, but it was clear who she was talking about. She said that she was a victim of sexual violence. And um, Johnny Depp uh, and his attorneys provided evidence that actually he was the one that was the victim of violence. Um, She threw a bottle at him, and the bottle smashed as it hit a table and his hand at the same time, and it cut his finger off. It cut the, the top of his finger off. Um, she claimed that he had punched her in the face and he had broken her nose, but then he provided a video showing her on the tonight show the next day and there was nothing wrong with her nose. And then she said, Oh, uh, I had to use this makeup, this certain makeup to cover it up. There was no swelling. And then they got somebody from the makeup company to say that that makeup that she cited wasn't invented until two years later. So things didn't go well for Amber Heard. Um, she was ordered to pay Johnny Depp $10 million in, uh, in um, compensatory damages and $5 million in punitive damages. But Virginia has a law capping punitive damages at 350000 But then in her counterclaim against Johnny Depp, he was found to have defamed her. Right. And he was ordered to pay $2 million in compensatory damages, no money in punitive damages. So in the end, Johnny Depp comes out ahead $8,350,000. Yeah. Um, Amber Heard is one of the stars, was one of the stars uh, earlier this year of the biggest grossing movie in the history of movies. That would be Aquaman. Mm-hmm. And uh, she makes a lot of money, but because Aquaman was the biggest grossing movie. In I know, isn't movie? that sick? I haven't seen it. Not I have either. no intention of seeing it. Hmm. But yeah, all right. Um, she she said that her part in Aquaman two was was um, made smaller because of the trial. The jury didn't care about that. Yeah, and she says she just can't pay the eight point three five. She's going to have to pay the 8.35. Now, the reason this is all important, the reason why we're even bringing this up is that it is exceedingly rare for a public figure to win a defamation case. Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court has ruled multiple times that if you're a public figure, you know, people are allowed to use you as a punching bag and a target. That's just the cost of being a public figure. But what she wrote in this op-ed in The Washington Post was so over the top that he was defamed. And so uh, the Republicans are crowing about this today. Donald Trump Jr., Matt Gaetz, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, they all say that they've been defamed. And even though they're public figures, they claim that they can show an economic loss from the defamation. So 
That's gonna, what this is about. We're going to talk about this case a little bit more later, you know, after after ignoring it for a long time. Yeah. I would sort of let bits of it wash over me, but I just didn't want I didn't want to absorb it. Yeah. Um, but it is interesting because he lost he lost in the UK Absolutely and he right. lost his right to appeal. And the, the UK is perceived as being actually much friendlier. Yes. To much, much friendlier. To defamation plaintiffs. Yes. And they, it's a, a UK court found that he had abused his wife and so he she couldn't be accused of defamation right right um and so there is a lot of i think pondering to be done as to the role of media in mm-hmm. this as to the impact of uh, just you know live streaming the trial mm-hmm. the entire time the oh social God. media circus around it and the difference between having a judge decide something and having a jury decide something That's especially right. a, a jury that wasn't sequestered that's right. uh, so, yeah, there's a lot there. There are a lot of interesting aspects to this case and interesting possible precedents that we really Agreed. tried to ignore. But now I guess we it's have not to over. know about. Yeah, it's not over yet. Uh, there was other news, too. Uh, I'm sorry to say that there was another mass shooting yesterday. This one inside a hospital in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, a man opened fire, killing four people, including a doctor. He then turned the gun on himself and killed himself. This was a targeted attack. The guy had recently undergone back surgery and blamed the doctor for the pain that he was enduring. So he went to the hospital, he killed the doctor, he killed a nurse, he killed a couple of other people, and then he killed himself. And then also, I mean, really, like, I think it was the police chief, it was a spokesman saying uh, pointedly, uh, really pleased with the response times of law enforcement Really, you know, really contrasting their actions in this particular case to the actions of the Uvalde Police Department. And I understand, I guess I I understand it, but I find it, I actually find it pretty. It's in poor taste. It really was, you know. I mean, good, the police were there fast. It's kind of their job. Yeah, and yeah, I don't know. We also have this, people feel this need, police officers feel this need to be, they're constantly on the defensive. Yeah. Just get it. I don't know. Get over it, man. Just do, just do your job. Just do your job. And don't like need to be patted on the back for it. Crazy statistic. This was the 233rd mass shooting in the United States so far this year. Yeah. Now the government defines a mass shooting as a shooting in which at least four people are killed or wounded. 233 so far this year. The other uh, statistic I came across the other day was that so far this year, more children have died by gunfire than have police officers in the line of duty. Yes. I mean, so. Outrageous. It really is. That's our well-regulated militia. Yeah, it really is. And I do think, I mean, I do think there are, uh, I think, I think the availability of guns and the type of guns available does have an important, play an important role in this phenomenon. Absolutely. Agreed. But I do think we would be we would really not be fully solving the problem if we ignore the the social the social and public health component mm-hmm. as well. Right. I think Absolutely you have to you, right. think you have to address Especially both at health. the same time. Yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, under that category of cops feeling sorry for themselves, Seattle's police chief said yesterday that the Seattle PD had stopped investigating sex crimes. They're just not going to do it anymore. You're raped, you're assaulted, tough. Yeah. Uh, Because they say they don't have the budget to do so. The chief blamed the defund the police movement and said that the department had to make a choice of what to investigate and what to ignore. Sex crimes apparently aren't important enough to investigate, but they will continue to investigate um, graffiti, 
drug possession and car Mm break-ins because those apparently are more important than sex crimes. I mean, all of the uproar over this really rests upon the assumption that Seattle police and police in general give a damn about solving rape crimes anyway. That's a great point. The most recent data I could find for rape clearance rates for the Seattle police was in 2016 when their clearance rates for rapes, John, I don't know if you've seen it yet in our document. What do you want to guess it was? Man, I would I would want it to be 100 percent. It was 13 percent. Oh, my God. And 8 percent of those and resulted in an arrest. Five percent were cleared. This is this. You can designate oh a case God. as cleared, uh, cleared through. It's I think it's called extraordinary measures. Right. Which means police have identified a suspect and have enough evidence to arrest the suspect, but can't do it for reasons beyond their control. Sometimes this is because a suspect is dead. Sometimes this is because the the victim stops cooperating. Sometimes they're in another jurisdiction. Right. But so eight percent of rape uh, rapes resulted in an arrest. So that's a lot less than the national average, which is still not good at 30 percent. But the idea that they had been working so hard and doing such a great job and now they just can't because they've been defunded right. is really stupid. What I also I, I got bad at this, so I had to look up a bunch about the Seattle police. So I want to tell you. Oh, good. Um, The Seattle police budget has grown steadily for the past 20 years. It has grown faster than the population of Seattle has increased. Its headcount has not kept pace. So what has happened is police spending per officer has increased by about 50 percent over the past 20 years. This is according to a 2020 analysis of the budget by a a local analyst. Uh, Patrol operations budgets grew even as patrol headcounts didn't. Right. And then what happened was the the budget has gone down since 2020. Right. The 2020 Seattle police budget was four hundred and one million. The 2021 budget was three hundred and sixty three million. But also at the end of 2021, they had a 15 million surplus. So they just didn't get this year the amount of money. I mean, it's a, a little bit less, but less than the amount of money that last year they didn't spend. So just spare me. With all of this, right? Spare me with the idea that police in general do a good job of clearing rapes or even trying and that the Seattle police in particular had ever cared. Oh, that's a great point. And I'll tell you something that I know I've told you before and you don't take me terribly seriously, but that is a great (laughs) op-ed and you should write that. (laughs) There are people who know a lot more about this than I do. Um, There was some other other little bits in the news today that we we can go through before we get to our first guest. Uh, The White House going to start paying its interns. Yeah. How do you like that? I mean, good. Tell Uh, you the truth. I had no idea that those interns were unpaid. Right. And I've known people working as interns in the White House since the 80s. Yeah. I just assumed they were always paid. If you're a White House unpaid intern, imagine the temptation to start pocketing things to sell. Seriously. (laughs) With the advent of eBay? I do think if you're a person who wants to do an unpaid White House internship, you're not the kind of person who wants to sell White House items on eBay. You probably idolize the the White House and its inhabitants. Seriously. There were senior, like the senior most CIA officers when I was at the CIA. These are senior intelligence service officers in leadership positions. And every time they would go to Camp David on the weekends to brief the president, they would steal stuff. (laughs) Every one of them. Their offices were full of Camp David coffee mugs and coasters and pens and all kinds of stuff. I mean, it is true that as long as positions like these remain unpaid or underpaid, the only people who can do them are people who have other resources to fall back on. And so it does create a cycle. Yeah, it does. It creates a a, a club of rich people mm-hmm. who can access these kinds of positions. So, you know, great. 
White House interns getting paid. And also, big announcement about student debt relief. Yeah, big announcement. Big announcement about student debt relief specifically for people who attended one particular uh, college chain. Right. right. Corinthian colleges, which also happened to be a target of Kamala Harris when she was California uh, attorney general. Um, So, yeah, uh, around 560,000 borrowers will benefit from this debt cancellation. It will come out to 5.8 billion. Of course, people who had gone to these schools have long been able to have their debts canceled if they went through a process of filing an application for it. So the big difference now is that it will just be automatically Mm -hmm. automatically be waived. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to fill out the paperwork. You don't have to fill out the form. It cannot be. Yeah. They cannot think that we are so stupid as to look at this and think, oh, he did the student debt thing that he promised on the campaign trail. Oh, he did the student debt thing that we've been thinking about. Right. This is surely this is not intended to be met with that kind of fanfare. I can't imagine that they would think that the American people would think that this is the response to the student debt crisis. Yeah. The other thing that I thought was funny in this um, reporting is that they're they're always calling Corinthian colleges a for for profit college network, for profit college network, as though all of these other universities that are sitting on some of the most valuable real estate in the world with these huge endow- endowments that they're they're not for profit at all. Nobody's profiting from this. This is a this is an altruistic not for profit scheme, the price of which just happens to increase all the time. The debt to which, you know, so much so many people in this country live under. Come on. You know, I went to George Washington University and GW um, used to pride itself on the fact that it did not have an endowment. Right. But what they wouldn't tell you was that they're the second largest landowner in the District of Columbia next to the federal government. They own everything. They own all the land. All of these these big office buildings that you see on Pennsylvania Avenue in the Foggy Bottom neighborhood of Washington are owned by George Washington University. Yeah. It's worth billions and billions of dollars. So, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of profit in these nonprofit institutions. It is so silly that we just allow that to go by unnoticed. It's so silly. Well, I think, well, it's 12.15. Yeah. I think we uh, are ready for our first guest. Yeah, Shall we go to, a, go to a break? Talk some foreign policy. Yeah, we have a lot to talk about foreign policy-wise. We're going to take a short break. You are listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We will come back right after this. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here in the studio with Michelle Witte. The Russian military this morning took control of Severodonetsk, the last Ukrainian holdout in the Luhansk region of the Donbass. And the Kremlin complained loudly today about the Biden administration's plans to send another $700 million in lethal aid to Ukraine. This aid includes four MQ-1C Gray Eagle drones made by General Atomics. Uh, They can be equipped with eight Hellfire missiles, cruise missiles. The Gray Eagle would mean a major upgrade in Ukraine's drone capabilities. 
Ukraine announced that it was working with the United Nations to establish new routes to export grain. That's kind of a big deal. Together, Russia and Ukraine account for 25% of the world's grain exports. But Ukraine is not able to use Black Sea ports right now, which are under Russian control. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov is traveling to Turkey in the coming days, and the U.S. Cyber Command admitted that it has conducted offensive operations in support of Ukraine. Finally, oil prices dipped today after Saudi Arabia finally said it would increase oil production, maybe by as much as 50%. The Saudis to date had refused to intervene to bring down the price of oil, which is currently between $115 and $122 a barrel. We're joined by Dr. David Walalu. He's an international geopolitical consultant, global speaker, author, veteran, and former international security analyst in Washington, D.C. He's the host of Geopolitics in Conflict. That's a show on YT. His latest book is called The Dynamics of Russia's Geopolitics, Remaking of the Global Order. Welcome back, David. Good to be with you, John. I'm Michelle. Always great to have you. I want to start, if we could, by talking about the Donbass Sierra uh, Donetsk came under Russian control this morning, at least most of it did. Uh, why is this important? Uh, does it allow the Russians to then focus on other areas? Uh, what, is, what does it mean for the Ukrainians? Well, it is very significant for the Russians, mm. especially on the eastern side. Of course, the comedian Zelensky is going to be saying that uh, uh, the Ukrainian forces are holding back. And that's nonsense. At least the reports that I read from outside the United States suggest mm-hmm. otherwise. What the, the purpose for why Russia wants to make sure of that is that Uh, As I predicted way back that what's going to be happening down the road is that the eastern part of Ukraine will have to be under Russia's control one way or another for security reasons. So that's going to start now with this area of the uh, Lugansk. Then, of course, with, with the Crimea, that's taken care of because the control to the Black Sea. So the Ukrainians are saying, wait, wait, wait. No, this is not true. No, it is true. The Russians took over the uh, uh, the control over most of the Lugansk. And that, to me, as an analyst, suggests that the objective is to ensure full control over the eastern side of Ukraine. Right. Um, it's not unusual uh, for the Biden administration to make announcements of additional military aid to Ukraine. We... We talk about it here on the show, and it seems like it's just it's coming constantly, at least every week. It happens all the time. But the Gray Eagle announcement today is is a big deal. It comes just two days after Biden said he would not send missiles to Ukraine that have the capability to hit Russia. Not only can the Gray Eagles hit Russia, they can carry eight Hellfire cruise missiles each, and they can fly for 30 hours without refueling. Why the quick upgrade in capabilities, especially after the president said that he wasn't going to provide weapons like this? Well, that that shows right there, John, the, not the double standard, but the lack of credibility of the administration. And this is not just about the administration, but about American foreign policy. We say one thing and do the opposite. And you wonder why we don't have credibility around the world, you know. So back to the point of the uh, of, of of the type of weapons. Yes, to me personally, it's like adding or pouring oil on a fire. That's what it means. And this is why I believe the reason why Russia went ahead and 
conducted a nuclear drill about two days ago or so to send a message to the United States that if you move forward with that proposal of sending those type of advanced weapons, we'd be looking at a different dimensions in the war. And we can't afford this, us here in the United States, by sending more money when oil prices are going up. So the yeah. idea that you are, you, the administration, sacrificing the welfare of the American people to keep sending weapons, which, by the way, most media in the West do not disclose. And I checked on this from overseas. Some of the weapons that we've sent have been destroyed. The Russians are destroying those weapons. So what is the purpose of all this? And what is the objective? And why we can't do for reducing our own stockpile here and send it over to Ukraine? And this is where the big concern is. So the idea that the president, President Biden, that is uh, going back on his statements, it suggests that there is no strategy whatsoever. There is no vision for foreign policy. And the only one objective is to, as they always say, fighting the uh, Ukraine war to the last Ukrainians. You know, one of the things that I noticed, too, that I, I don't know if this is just the White House being disingenuous uh, or what, but the president made this statement what, two days ago, saying that that he would not provide Ukraine with weaponry that gave it the capability to attack Russia. But the $40 billion appropriation included money for training in the pilot piloting of these Gray Eagle drones. So it was never true that the president didn't intend to provide weapons that had the ability to attack Russia. Uh, the media today made the point that the Gray Eagle sale is not a done deal. And, you know, they say sale. It's not really a sale. We buy the Gray Eagles from General Atomics and then donate them to, um, to Ukraine. So it's a sale to ourselves. Uh, Congress still has to approve it. Now, they've already, as I just said, budgeted the money for it and budgeted the money for the training associated with it. Uh, but they still have to take a vote allowing the, the actual transfer to take effect. Do you foresee any chance whatsoever that Congress will change its mind on this? Because this is a serious upgrade in, in weaponry. And the, and the Russians already said this morning that they see this as, as an American attack on them. Well, that's very interesting because here's the thing, <clears throat> excuse me, what your listeners need to know that, that, that this is why we need to start to understand how politicians talk because the messages are hidden within the words they are using. Basically, what am I referring to here? I'm referring to the statements that the uh, administration stated or said suggest that they are looking for the long term. This is not going to end the next year. This is not going to end the next two years. We are looking at a long term. And the long term comes at an expense of the American people. No different than Iraq, no different than Afghanistan, no different than in Somalia and other parts of the world. And this is where the danger of all this. It's because if you, the administration, move forward with this proposal, with the assumption that Congress will prove it. And I have my feeling that Congress is gonna prove this. You know, 
we're dragging this even to a much dangerous phase, which suggests Russians will have no other option but to consider the usage of their tactical nuclear weapons. This is a very, very dangerous as to where are we headed because a failed policy from the current administration here in the US into understanding that providing weapons to Ukraine ain't gonna solve the problem. You're gonna have to sit down and negotiate for a peace resolution. So that's the bottom line to it. And the United States is not willing to do this. Despite what we hear about the 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 the, uh, the comedian Zelensky saying that well we are wanting to negotiate with the Russians, you have no power whatsoever to negotiate with the Russians if your master says no. That's the bottom line to it. And I wish you know most Americans wake up to this reality to understand that sometimes what we say will have a serious consequences uh, here at home. Because as, 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 as a, what I learned throughout my years in academia is that when it comes down to global affairs, context matters. And this is no different than what President Biden said a couple of days ago or week, about a week ago when he was in Asia, that the U.S. will come to the defense of Taiwan. Well, we all know what our policy is regarding Taiwan. So why say that? only yeah. to aggravate the Chinese in that case. This is no different than what we are saying right now about providing Ukrainians with these advanced weapons. Tell me why the Ukrainians have not sued for peace, because it seems to be very much in their national interest to sue for peace, just so as not to lose additional territory. But there hasn't been any international suit for peace. Uh, it seems like they've bought into this, you know, fight to the last Ukrainian policy and we don't we haven't heard anything whatsoever about peace talks uh even being proposed let alone carried out no you won't, we won't hear about this and your listeners needs to truly understand this because ukraine cannot and i say it with conviction cannot call for negotiations if the united states does not approve it that's the mm -hmm. bottom line to it basically the comedian zelensky is at the mercy of the U.S. because it's the U.S. that calls the shot, not uh, Zelensky. He can't do nothing. And when you consider, for example, if he goes, he, Zelensky, goes against the, the objective of the Azov Battalion, for example, they will neutralize him in no time. Mm. That's, that's, the, that's a fact. That's the reality on the ground. He is a figurehead. Zelensky is a figurehead. And this is what the speech he gave on Thursday in Luxembourg uh, or in Brussels. No, in Luxembourg, that is. That was preceded by the uh, uh, Brussels meeting about banning the Russian oil and so forth. But uh, just to give you an idea, your listeners need to understand this reality. Ukraine cannot call for peaceful talks because they are not in possession to do so. And the West, mm -hmm. on the other hand, headed by the U.S., does not want peaceful resolution as of today. I want to ask you, too, about uh, Sergei Lavrov's uh, visit to Turkey. It's going to take place in the coming days. It's going to uh, be with a delegation that will include Russian soldiers. The Turkish government said that Lavrov is going to receive the red carpet treatment. 
Clearly, Lavrov wants to talk about the possibility that Finland and Sweden may join NATO. But what else would you expect to be on the agenda in a, in a visit like this? There are two other things, John. Uh, one of them has to do with, uh, with Turkey sending its troops to northern Syria. Yes. Okay? And the second one has to do with the possibility of military activities of the Turks near the islands near Greece. Yeah, That's this is a the, big the deal detention. in Greece. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and Russia, of course, uh, Finland and Sweden is part of the talks, but that's not all about that one, because now Turkey is the wild card, shall we say, whether uh, Finland and Sweden is going to be admitted to NATO or not. And, and I, 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 I have a bit, I'm putting question mark about it, because what Turkey is asking of Finland and Sweden to do in order to be accepted I don't see the Swedish and the Finnish governments agreeing to it. Basically, what Recep Tayyip Erdogan is asking both Sweden and Finland is to change domestic law regarding terrorism. Mm. And that becomes very problematic when you have another country dictating to you what to do with your own domestic policies. That's what I see. David, I... Yeah, Michelle. I wanted to return uh, for a minute to the subject of, um, you know, what the end of this war could look like and who actually is controlling, you know, how it ends and, and you know, who, who gives the green light to negotiations. Because I think, you know, after a couple of months of really solid um, cheerleading from the Western press for Ukraine and, and you know, I, I, the promotion of this idea that Ukraine can can win this war and that Russia is about to buckle and that sanctions are really hurting. I think it is notable that in the last couple of weeks, you have had questions raised by the editorial board of The New York Times yeah. as to what the end game really is here and and, and have people thought about the, the consequences of, of uh, having this conflict run on for a long time. And then today you have the the economics editor of The Guardian, right? Not a friendly newspaper to Russia saying Russia is winning the economic war. Putin is no closer to withdrawing troops. And sooner or later, a, a deal has to be made, uh, making the point that Look, these these sanctions that are intended to hurt Russia are really hurting other people more. And that, you know, it, it, this idea that we, deal making is not going to have to happen is childish and is maybe going to cause a lot of harm if we cling to it. I think it's I think it is a, a notable shift, right, that there may now be some pressure from uh, some of these media organizations that were part of the initial hype of the war now going, well, wait a minute. You know, this is feeling bad here. You know, we're feeling consequences in the United States. The consequences that are being felt around the world, you could argue, argue are going to be even more severe if um, poorer countries start to suffer shortages as a result of these sanctions. And, you know, maybe maybe we do actually have to look realistically at this conflict and, and who really has the power to end it and how. And so I wondered, you know, if you think we have kind of are making a significant shift here in the treatment of the war, even in media organs like The Guardian. Well, that, that was very interesting. When I read, when I took a look at that article and I was like, what? The Guardian are saying this? Yeah. That tells me right there, they are now convinced. Uh, and this is my personal assessment and my personal opinion. They are now convinced that the Russian president ain't going to back down. He will, he will not because he set the objectives 
in the Donbass area, for example, and this is where I see the, the, the moving forward, uh, which was confirmed, by the way, by Henry Kissinger about three days ago when he said that Ukrainians yes. will have to cede some of the territory. And that right. is the exact objective for what Russia is aiming at. And that falls in line with where the operations, military that is, is moving forward for you with the area of uh, Donbass and so forth. Because Russia wants to ensure the eastern part of Ukraine is no longer under the control of Ukraine. So the West in this case or this scenario relies on that. Russians are not going to back down, okay? Ukraine cannot defeat the Russians. So is it time for us to start to change the narrative? Because remember, they're going to have to pave the way psychologically for the masses to start to say, well, maybe it's time to sit down and have a talks with the exactly. Russians. Yeah, but they won't come forward and say it because that means... It's a, it's, a, it's a sign of defeat, and the West is not going to do that. But even with the West, when I say the West, I am referring to the United States. Europe is like, as I always say, is the child that never grows up and is in constant need of direction, supervision, and discipline. Mm-hmm. That's the way I look at it. So Europe is, is, is out of questions when negotiating with the Russians. So who's left in the room? is the United States. And the U.S. as of today is not willing to do that. If you compare USAID to the Afghan uh, Mujahideen in the 1980s with USAID to Ukraine, uh, the, the United States needed for the war in Afghanistan against the Soviets to drag on for years because that's how long it took to shoot down Russian troop transports and to blow up Russian tanks and and get uh, Stinger missiles into the hands of the of the Mujahideen. Well, this war in Ukraine just started in February. And for the for the Ukrainians to lose it now or to announce that they're suing for peace or that they can't continue fighting because they've lost the Donbass or the Crimea or whatever, it, it defeats the U.S.'s goal in the country, the U.S.'s goal is to, t- to tie the Russians down over the long term with a hot war, a conflict. And uh, like I say, it just started. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense for the Americans for Ukraine to try to come to some sort of a peace agreement with the Russians. Exactly. And this is why, once again, for your listeners to see where the trends are going, this is why you are seeing a shift in policy as far as the shipment of some advanced weapons per se. You know, here is about three weeks ago, four weeks ago, whatever, whenever that was, the president said, well, well, we can't send those advanced weapons because it will escalate. All of a sudden, we are shifting the policy. And, And this is exactly in support of your argument as to why Ukraine can say whatever you want. We want to negotiate with the Russians. They can say whatever they want. If the U.S. does not support that, ain't going to happen. That's the bottom line to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, General Paul Nakasone, uh confirmed this morning that the U.S. Cyber Command has conducted offensive operations, mm-hmm. not defensive or not just defensive, but offensive operations against Russia in support of Ukraine. He said that these operations helped the U.S. to identify Russian hackers before they could harm U.S. or Ukrainian interests and also serve to counter Russian propaganda and information warfare. Um, 
this part of warfare, cyber, is normally so secret. Do we really know what Cyber Command is doing, or do we d- just take Nakasone's word for it? Well, I won't. <laughs> I <laughs> Nor will I. Because, yeah, <laughs> I, just, I just, I won't, because here is the thing. I remember about a year ago or so, uh, I wrote an article about the hacking of the sections of the Pentagon uh, by some groups overseas. And, and where was the Cyber Command into all this? They, they just couldn't identify where even the hack came from. So, so when statements coming out of the Cyber Command, they're just for domestic consumption. No more, no less. It's because that they are far sophisticated. They, the other entities over whatever they may be, they are very, very sophisticated when it comes down to that. So his statements, I just won't buy it personally, and, and, and I just won't trust what he's saying. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned in the introduction uh, to this segment, David, the Saudis said that they would increase oil production by 50 percent. Prices of U.S. oil fell one to two dollars a barrel uh, today. What immediate effects do you think this will have on on gas prices around the world? Nothing. Nothing, John. I I just I just tweeted on it yesterday that here's folks what you need to expect is you're going to be expecting increase at the gas pump. And as a matter of fact, I was driving yesterday uh, and I saw the gas uh, here in Texas moved from uh, $4.29 to $4.55. You know, this of course coincide with the decision of the EU to ban about 90%. Uh, of, of course, the EU just showing that, but there are cracks inside because some EU members like, for example, uh, Hungary, Hungary imports about 65% of its energy needs from Russia. They said, well, I'm not gonna do that. You're talking about shooting ourselves in the foot, economically speaking. So, and this explains why Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia, went to Saudi Arabia two days ago, of course, to attend the meeting of the GCC, but also went to Riyadh. Well, why did he go to Riyadh? It's because they wanted to coordinate the production policies between OPEC and OPEC plus, because Russia is an OPEC plus. Because here's the thing, what the Western media, again, not disclosing the truth, when they're saying, if they are saying 50%, they are only producing about 648,000 barrels. What is that in global economic consumption? It's a drop in the bucket. It's not going to change things much. You know, and the idea for us here in the United States, uh, sadly enough, and it pains me to say this, most of us Americans are ill-informed about understanding these dynamics because we think about the oil just supply and demand. No, it's geopolitics that is impacting that decision or those prices. And for us to be sending almost $56 billion to Ukraine total, At the expense of an American people, I have a problem with that, and I have a hard time accepting that. Okay, thank you, Dr. David Walalu, for joining us. David is an international geopolitical consultant, global speaker, author, veteran, and former international security analyst here in Washington, D.C. He's the host of the Geopolitics and Conflict show on YT, and his latest book is called The Dynamics of Russia's Geopolitics, Remaking of the Global Order. You are tuned to Political Misfits here on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back. 
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. The United Nations announced this morning that two sides in the Yemen conflict, that's the internationally recognized government and the so-called Houthi rebels, had agreed to a two-month extension of their ceasefire, which was supposed to expire today. The ceasefire was implemented two months ago, and it had reduced hostilities notably. As part of the truce deal, the parties to the conflict agreed to halt all military operations inside Yemen and across its borders, operate two commercial flights a week from Houthi-controlled Sana'a to Jordan and to Egypt, allow 18 fuel vessels into the port of the Houthi-controlled city of Hodeidah, and open the roads in Taiz and other governance. The number of civilians killed and injured in Yemen dropped by more than 50% in the first month of the truce. We're joined by Danica Katowicz. She is Code Pink's national coordinator. I'm sorry, co-director. Welcome back, Danica. Thanks for having me. So glad to have you. And this is such an important issue. It's something that we follow closely and we know that you and Code Pink do as well. I have a lot of questions for you about this, but I'm going to try to keep it short. First of all, a ceasefire is always a good thing, of course. But this agreement says nothing about the Saudis and the Emiratis. Are they still belligerents in this conflict or by extension, does the ceasefire affect them as well? They are uh, 100% belligerents in this conflict. Actually, if you go back since 2015 and you look at sort of any peace agreement or anything that was coming close to a peace agreement or any deals made in regards to the war in Yemen, a lot of the times the governments of Saudi Arabia and the UAE are not mentioned. And they've done a really good job of sort of passing off responsibility to the government that they support in Yemen um, as a belligerent in the conflict. But the fact of the matter is, is that when we're talking about halting airstrikes in Yemen, the, the governments responsible for those airstrikes are the Saudi and Emirati coalition. Um, so if you look at the country that is the country that is blockading the land, air and sea of Yemen, it's Saudi Arabia and the UAE. So, they are 100% still belligerents, and we're ta- when we're talking about ending airstrikes in Yemen, it is almost always referring to Saudi UAE-led airstrikes inside of Yemen for the last six or seven years. What does the ceasefire extension do for the chances for a permanent peace? Is, is the ceasefire accompanied by actual peace talks, or do we just have to hope that the two sides uh, initiate talks? So... It's definitely a goal um, of the agreement. The ceasefire agreement is to halt sort of hostilities while they negotiate um, a permanent peace. Um, I'm not sure exactly what what that's looking like, but that is the end goal. Um, And I am feeling very hopeful um, about that. I think it's been the longest period without airstrikes in Yemen since 2015, which is really meaningful. Um, So... I'm hopeful that a permanent peace is in the near future. Um, And it's just not sustainable to keep renewing peace talks because um, it it indicates fragility. Like they can always expire in two months, which is not good for um, peace talks in general. But there are still a lot of things that the Saudi coalition needs to give up in order to create a permanent peace. You know, one of the things that that, I have trouble with, and and that's why I use the words uh, so-called in the introduction, is whether we like it or not, the Houthis have to be treated 
I think, equally with the internationally recognized government. The internationally recognized government doesn't even control the capital city of the country. And and so don't you think it's time we just accept the fact that the Houthis are in control of, of Yemen? It, it is it is irresponsible foreign policy to not take the Houthis seriously. They control most of Yemen so, <laughs> and the capital city. So, you know, where most Yemenis live are governed by the Houthis. And actually, I want to say that in Sana'a, it's more of a coalition government. The Houthis are a part of it. Right. So it's more inclusive than most people think. I want to say that first. But also, um, just like uh, with the Taliban in Afghanistan, like how else is the U.S. going to be serious about conducting foreign policy if you won't recognize the government? You know what it reminds me of? And I don't want to get too far off topic, but but I think you're right. This is irresponsible foreign policy. It reminds me of the United States having diplomatic relations with Juan Guaido in uh, in Venezuela and then pretending that you're talking to the Venezuelans. You're not talking to the Venezuelans. You're talking to this grad student from GW who you just decided one day is going to be the president of a country because you don't like the president that was elected. And then you pretend to have this foreign policy. And it's the same thing in Yemen. I mean, we can say until we're blue in the face that that the Houthis are an Iran proxy and whether they are or aren't, I think is irrelevant. What's relevant is that they're in charge. And if you're serious about feeding people and providing clean water and providing uh, medical assistance, then you've got to work with the people who are in charge of the country. And we're not really there yet. And it's also condescending to a certain point, um, because when people in the West are talking about um, this government is bad, like I, I, I trust the Yemeni people to decide their own future and chart their own course. Um, Agreed. And I don't they don't need to be saved by U.S. imperialists who are, in fact, helping bomb their country in the first place. Agreed. Uh, I want to ask you about uh, the provision in this ceasefire relative to roads and airports. So now that roads and airports are supposed to be open or at least partially open, what does it do to Yemen's ability to bring in food and medicine? Um, people are are starving to death in Yemen, which is which is new. You know, into the 1980s. Uh, Yemen was a net food exporter. It it fed uh, a number of countries in the Horn of Africa and exported food to Saudi Arabia. That's not the case anymore. People are are starving to death there. And we know that even COVID aside, uh, people are dying just because basic medicines are not available. Does that change with this new agreement? It changes a little bit, uh, not to the extent it needs to. Um, so there are still significant road closures that haven't been solved by the ceasefire agreement. Um, and sure, if food and medicine is allowed to come in, maybe it's coming in enough. But the issue with the roads being closed and also the limiting of fuel coming into parts of Yemen is that First, let's say the roads are closed still, like some of the roads. You can't get food and the food and medicine that's coming in uh, to Yemenis who need it in hard to reach places. So that's the issue with the road closures. And then also limiting uh, fuel ships. I mean, they are allowing certain fuel ships to come in, but not nearly enough. And they've been starved fuel for several, several years now. So there's not nearly enough fuel coming in in the first place. Um, so when the food and medicine arrives at the ports, if it is, if it is, um, they can't transport it one, because some of the roads are closed and then also they don't have enough fuel to get all of these supplies to where it needs to go. Right. 
Uh, the Yemeni government controls the city of, of Daiz along the coast, but, but it doesn't control Sana'a, as we mentioned a few minutes ago. Uh, so the status quo is going to remain the status quo in this, in this extension of the, uh, of the ceasefire. What does that do for a lasting peace? You know, one of the things that we're not hearing about anymore is peace talks being held in Khartoum or Cairo or, or Muscat. Uh, should we expect to be hearing something like that? Should we expect that, that all the different sides are going to finally sit down and try to work this out? I think the side that really needs to start coming to the table, and and I'll circle back to your original question, mm-hmm. you know, differences in, in power within Yemen, is Saudi Arabia, the Houthis have said, you need to end the blockade. That is what it will yeah. take us to come to the negotiating table. Because the blockade is starving millions of Yemenis. So if you if you are serious about peace and a lasting peace, you have to come to the table. And a big part of the blockade in the war in the first place is that Saudi Arabia has such a large stake in who is in charge in Yemen because Yemen controls the Bab al-Mandeb Strait, which is where Saudi Arabia has most of its oil. So as long as Saudi Arabia still feels like it can control Yemen and decide who is in charge, um, wherever that is, then... Uh, there there won't be um, a significant peace talks, I think, not in the ways we've seen before. So I think Saudi Arabia has to still make a lot of concessions um, before serious peace talks are, are and not just renewing ceasefire agreements come into play. Um, so as long as Saudi Arabia keeps trying to prop up the old government in Yemen in certain places, that is... Uh, this, that is disrespecting Yemen's sovereignty as a country. What's the role of Oman in all this? You know, the, the, the first time I, I started uh, traveling to Yemen, uh, the Omanis were afraid of the Yemenis. They were afraid of separatist organizations. They were afraid of terrorist groups that might have been in the, in the east of Yemen, which is sort of a no man's land. Um, and they... They were concerned about their border not being respected. Now, the Yemenis turn to the Omanis as the honest broker in the region, uh, the country that has good relations with everybody, whether it's the Iranians or the Saudis or the Emiratis. The, the Omanis are the ones that everybody goes to to say, hey, help us work this out. Um, should we be looking to the Omanis here to sort of advance, advance the cause of peace? Uh, we've got a deadline now. It's just two more months and then this new agreement expires. Yeah, I mean, I think for all intents and purposes, Oman serves uh, more or less as a neutral party. They're close. Um, They've seen firsthand what is happening in Yemen um, because they're right next to Yemen. Um, And I don't, I mean, the U.S. definitely can't be a neutral party in any sort of that take place. And we definitely are kind of forcing ourselves into those negotiations, um, which I think is not useful. And I don't think Yemenis should take us seriously at all in that regard. So I think Oman serves a better purpose than like the U.S. ever could. And tell me what you think the role of the United States uh, is here. You you said a minute ago that the U.S. isn't an honest broker. I couldn't agree more. Uh, so far, we've seen from Washington uh, just d- death and destruction. We see massive sales of of weaponry and 
weapon systems and jet fighters and missiles should there even be a u.s role can the u.s be a peacemaker in the region i don't think so <laughs> so you already mentioned the weapons sale billions of dollars to weapons in saudi arabia and the uae since the war in yemen started so we're involved there and and president biden made a announcement last February um, where he said we're ending U.S. offensive involvement in the war in Yemen, which didn't mean anything. It was an absolutely Mm -hmm. empty promise. Um, What still exists today is the arms sales, um, is logistical support to the Saudi Royal Air Force, maintenance and spare parts transfers, and intelligence sharing. So almost nothing has changed since Biden came into office at all. There was a bill, a resolution introduced in Congress yesterday by Representative Stefazio Jayapal and uh, Adam Schiff, the new Mm -hmm. war powers resolution for Yemen um, that specifically tackles those last three things I said, which would go after um, intelligence sharing, spare parts transfers to the Saudi Air Force and maintenance because the Saudi Air Force cannot function without U.S. support. So we're definitely involved in the war in Yemen, that's why I say we can't be an honest broker. Yeah. And I think the U.S. right now, like people in the U.S. should be mobilizing around stopping all involvement of our country, stopping arms sales, passing the war powers resolution in a meaningful way that can be enacted. And then actually calling on our government to stop any support for this war. We've got just a couple of minutes left, and I, I have to ask you about uh, Afghanistan. Uh You know, I think one of the reasons why we, quote unquote, lost the war in Afghanistan, and and this is something that an Afghan friend told me, Um, he said, look, you know, the the members of the Taliban are our fathers and sons and brothers and and cousins. They're not outside occupiers. These are these are Afghans and they're relatives of ours. And so uh, there was never really any any hope that the United States was going to through the use of force, uh, uh, force uh, push the Taliban out of the country. So the Taliban runs the country. They made some promises when they first retook power uh, with regard to women's rights and the education of girls. They've gone back on those promises, and now women have to be fully veiled again, and girls are having increasingly uh, uh, tough times getting an education. Uh, What should we expect in Afghanistan? Is it going to get worse? And do you think there's a way for us to work with the Taliban? I think the first priority of people in the United States, not the government, but the people of the United States, working class people of the United States, is international solidarity and what it actually at its core means. And we took so much money from the the Afghans when we left. Mm -hmm. Um, We froze their assets. And the number one demand of people in the United States in an act of solidarity with the Afghan people is sending the money back to the Afghan Central Bank so their economy can be stimulated because people yeah. people need to eat. That's their first you know, thing of survival is people need to eat, be housed, et cetera. Um, and then working on international solidarity from there. I think if we're serious, if the U.S. government is serious about conducting foreign policy, it can't shut out governing bodies completely. If we have yeah. no relationship with the country, what what sort of avenues do we have outside of force? 
Um, fear we, that the, oh, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. We only have about 30 seconds left. Can, can you give me just a quick thought on, on women's rights in Afghanistan? Where do you see women's rights heading? It's hard to say. I'm not an expert in Afghanistan, um, but I am disappointed at the trajectory that the Taliban is taking it, but I trust um, Afghan women and the women of the world to come together in like a meaningful way um, and demand their rights for themselves because realistically, people in Afghanistan know what is best for them, not anyone in or the Indeed. U.S. government. It's not up to us to impose our own our own values. Well, thank you, Danica Katovich, uh, for joining us. Danica is Code Pink's national co-director. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a break, take us to the top of the hour, and come back with more guests. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, getting into a couple of interesting stories about law, politics, and the power of the media. We're going to be talking a little bit more about that Depp Heard trial and its verdict. We're going to talk about the steady rise of hunger in the United States and of uh, our perceptions of ourselves as a democratic society and and the ways that I think they can be manipulated. Joining us for these conversations is political analyst Brian Doyle. Brian has served as assignment editor at Time Magazine and as deputy press secretary at the Department of Homeland Security. Brian, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Nice to talk to you again, Michelle and John. Let's talk about this this trial, not so much the verdict, maybe, but we did get a verdict in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation trial in Virginia. And, you know, it is funny because I, I had been hearing for a while uh, that Johnny Depp would probably lose the case, but he would achieve his real goal of clearing his name or at least uh, introducing introducing some doubt uh, about what Amber Heard has alleged about him. Instead, as we mentioned earlier in the show, he won a, a verdict that will get him $15 million on three counts of defamation. Uh, he was also found to have defamed Amber Heard through his lawyer, for which she was awarded $2 million. And the outcome was unexpected because Depp had lost a similar case in the UK already where courts are perceived to be friendlier to defamation plaintiffs. Um, the court in the UK basically had to, you know, it, it said, no, we, we found you guilty of abusing your, right, your wife. Like we, we have found 12 instances where we believe that to be true. Um, and so you have people saying the difference in this case in the United States is that this was decided by a jury. And the UK case was decided by a judge and basically that the jury was swayed by evidence that the judge dismissed. The U.S. jury was also not sequestered. They were just told not to read about the trial. But the trial was a circus from day one. Right. It was live streamed. It was all over social media. You had, I saw interviews of people who were dressed as pirates outside the courtroom. You have people putting pirate flags in their social media profiles to show their support for Johnny Depp. All the salacious details of what do seem to be 
you know, I, I, I am not going to, I've said over and over, I did not pay a lot of attention to this trial. I didn't want to, right? Uh, but it did seem to be two nasty people being nasty to each other. And we got to just, you know, wallow in it for weeks. Monica Lewinsky actually wrote a piece about this trial for Vanity Fair, uh, the trial and the treatment that it got, calling it court porn and saying that, you know, viewers are complicit in that process. But of course, you can't have a viewer without the vehicle bringing this to him. And that is the media. It's the channels that broadcast the whole train wreck. And so I wonder if you see in this result uh, an impact of media and social media cycles that were not necessarily there in this in the UK version of this trial. Well, they may have been there. They may not have been on the UK version. Uh, I have numerous friends who would tell you that when the Internet, the usability of the Internet first came into being, I said, I don't think this is a good idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has a lot of upsides, but uh, human nature being what it is, um, and the capacity for self-delusion, which is infinite, which is one of my favorite phrases and truths, I I believe, allows people to believe whatever they want to believe within their own mind. Mm-hmm. You're right. These were two nasty people. Uh, actors with egos were completely mismatched as a couple. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> a, a blind man could see that. And, uh, <laughs> and it's just awful. Um, and, you know, I find it... In, the, the, if I was a member of the jury, I'd, I'd want to go home and take a shower. Yeah. It was just awful. Now, implications. People are saying, oh, well, if you're a woman in the U.S., in your views, it'll be hard. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah. First of all, uh, we do believe in um, free speech here in a different way. I mean, England has long had this uh, concept that where you can sue for defamation. And it is harder here because we have such an emphasis on the First Amendment. You know, basically call anybody anything. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, you know, they were both of them were their own worst enemy. Amber Heard with that tape of her belittling him and laughing at him, calling him names. And, you know, Depp himself doing the same thing with, you know, saying you're nothing but a, you know, whore or whatever it was he called her. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, it, so, it, it, two of the most unlikable people. And everyone mm-hmm. said, oh, well, Depp won, he got the $15 million. No, he got 13 because there was a judgment against him as well for $2 million. Um, Yeah, I guess if you want to total it on money, yeah, he won, but didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, they both lost. Uh, I mean, and, yeah. and what, what bothered me about social media is, and the fan base and all this, it was like they turned it into like a, a, a football game, a sporting contest. Yeah. When I saw those, I'm sorry for lack of a better way to put it, idiots outside the courtroom jumping up and down when they heard the verdict. Mm-hmm. Thought, mm-hmm. Like it somehow had something to do with them. Yeah. It somehow affected them. Yeah, in some way. Well, you know, right. down the road, God forbid, something like that may affect them, but hopefully for, you know, a better outcome. Now, abuse is no joke. And whether it's defamation or whatever it might be, that's no joke either. No, and I think that, you know, the the fear that you alluded to that uh, what this means is that victims of abuse, uh, it tells the, this verdict tells victims of domestic abuse that it is very dangerous to speak up, even if you don't name your abuser. This is the sort of fear from people who think that 
um, Amber Heard actually, you know, that there was merit to what Amber Heard said and that she didn't deserve this. And this trial sort of represented generalized misogyny, right, coming to bear. I mean, again, I don't know. I, I did start the trial with a sort of vague sense that Amber Heard was a charlatan and I came out feeling like feeling less like that. Right. Uh, but I think also when you bring in social media and levels of celebrity, uh, a lot of this becomes about likability rather than mm -hmm. rather than actual victimhood. Right. And I don't, I'm not going to try and litigate the trial, but I do think we have a real problem of understanding that you don't have to be a likable person to have been wronged. And I think the, you know, uh, turning a trial into a circus like that doesn't it. it makes this issue worse, I think, Brian. Oh, I agree with you. I agree. And I, yeah. I think um, overall, uh, you know, the proliferation of cable and websites has made it 10 times worse. You know, mm -hmm. growing up, I mean, I'm a few years older than you younger people. Uh, mm -hmm. it, long before cable, long before social media, we had a basic idiom in this country. We had three networks. And, you know, Sunday night, everybody would watch Walt Disney, World of Disney, or Bonanza, or whatever it might be. And the next day, you go to school or wherever you're going, you talk about the show. Yeah. Now, there's so much out there, and then, you know, you're surfing around, people surf around, they see this, whoa, look at this about Amber Heard, look at this about Johnny Depp, look at this about, you know, JFK being murdered. I mean, to me, it started with that. The mm -hmm. whole conspiracy theories and all this other garbage. Uh, I confess I'm an institutionalist, and people mm -hmm. heard, uh, you know I hear people say, "Well, what about this?" Well, and I just I just start railing. I said, "Listen, nobody wants to believe, for example, in JFK's case, that somebody one person could kill him." Mm -hmm. Well, you know, think about this: Squeaky Fromm could have killed Gerald Ford had the gun not gone off. She walked right yeah, mm -hmm. that's right. I mean, come on, yeah. one person can do this. It happened. Yeah, and they they want to live in this alternate reality. And now you have all these websites where you can go and reinforce that view with people who believe the same way. So you mm -hmm. can't all be wrong, can you? And yeah. back to this case, it's a likability thing. Well, I like him so much, he couldn't have done this. He, he couldn't yeah. have done this. She had to be the person. It's the same thing. I think also this issue of of likability and also sort of the, the opposite, the ability to troll your enemy is something that we're seeing more and more in politics is a maybe, well, I would hate to see this become the deciding factor in politics. Right. And it reminds me is, uh, John, did you mention Michael Avenatti earlier? No, actually. Oh, so Michael Avenatti, right. Former lawyer for Stormy Daniels, uh, who at one point decided he'd run for president <laughs> because he was perceived as this guy who was taken on Trump by being the lawyer for Stormy Daniels. Right. Um, he had a very quick fall from grace. Uh, he was sentenced today to four years in prison. Uh, he had already been found guilty of defrauding Daniels. He's already serving time for trying to extort Nike. He's got another trial coming up on charges that he cheated other clients. Uh, yeah, his moment in the sun was was relatively short. And Avenatti, to be fair, did not get anywhere near the Oval Office. But the fact that it was even taken seriously for a second, yeah. I think, should should concern us. And I do think. You can tie the the rise of this idea of the celebrity politician to tr uh, uh, eroding trust in institutions, right? Because if you don't feel like you can trust anything anyone tells you, you know, whether it is a coming from an institution via a mouthpiece, whether it is coming from a sort of traditional po a politician, then you have nothing to go on but 
likability as expressed through the media. And I think in the case of Donald Trump uh, and Avenatti, the ability to successfully troll your opponent, right? Donald Trump had the good nicknames, that and a bunch of other things got him to the Oval Office. And I, I do think that is part of what's going on. I wanted to get your thought on that, Brian. Well, I agree with that. Uh, and Avenatti is an interesting case. I mean, I remember he was all over TV and mm-hmm. talking about, you know, I'm representing Stormy Daniel, blah, blah, blah. And again, this capacity for self-delusion, oh, I'm going to run for president. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> By chance? No, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I mean, these people live in their own little worlds. It's insane. And it's only, it's like pouring gasoline on a fire with the social media sites. And you're right. Yeah. It's done the likability. People control your opponent. You're, you're right on the money on that one because it's just crazy. And there, I remember talking to a colleague of mine when I was at Time Magazine, and we talked about that in the beginning of the early 80s with Rush Limbaugh and people like that, who basically now, instead of disagreeing on the merits and arguing the merits of different positions, you said that it, it became the attitude of you're not only wrong, but you're a bad person as well. Right. That that has become sadly ingrained and exacerbated by a Donald Trump who go oh, low, you know, little little Marco and you know low, low energy Jeb and all that. I mean, it's just and people kind of think, oh, that's funny. No, it's not. No. Yeah. What What are the merits of your argument then? Given to me, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I want to also uh, get out of the media swamp for a minute and talk about hunger in the United States, because we've been revisiting this topic on the show periodically uh, since the pandemic started. And NPR today had a story on what inflation and in particular rising food costs is doing to food banks in the U.S. Uh, Of course, during the pandemic, we saw long lines at food banks, but they really never went away. And now the president of Feeding America says the organization is experiencing a drumbeat of increasing demand month over month. But, you know, these banks rely on uh, donations, which are drying up as uh, grocery stores have less to donate. They also have to buy some of the food that they give to people. And so their costs are increasing and they are finding it hard to meet demand, which I think. Really, people listening should stop and let sink in. The food banks in the wealthiest country in the world, uh, if China hasn't just edged us out yet, the food banks in the wealthiest country in the world are straining under the demand they face. And they have resorted to doing things like limiting how often people can visit or how much food they can get, right? And Feeding America representatives say a lot of the people who are coming to them are working. They are just not earning enough to feed their families. Back in December, So before inflation had had gone buck wild, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, an Urban Institute survey found that one in six adults in the United States relied on charitable food. So back in December, that share was still above pre-pandemic levels. It is just shameful. And so, you know, when we talk about not trusting institutions anymore, I, I do understand why, because consistently people vote for politicians who who say that they intend to make life better for working people while on the campaign trail. And yet, you know, again, one in six Americans relying on charitable food donations and lines so long and demand so high that these donation centers are having to limit what people can take away. I I wonder if you can, you know, have any thoughts as to how we got here. I just want to give a little historical context very quickly, if I could. I go back to Bob Kennedy, who his famous tour of Appalachia after he was elected to yeah. the U.S. Senate. 
And I remember one of the great quotes, he said, we're the richest country on the earth and we can't feed our own people. And the gradual you know, inflation that uh, later occurred in the 70s, Vietnam War, Watergate, all of that. And then when Ronald Reagan took, took the presidency in 80, Paul Volcker, the Fed chairman, basically crushed inflation, but the cost of it to human beings. I remember the line. Mm-hmm. I remember it. And it Sure. But what has gotten worse was the bifurcation of the haves and have-nots in this country through the 80s, or the, the swinging 80s, you know, mm-hmm. good. and it continued in the 90s. Yeah. And here, here's where we are. We've got yeah. people who, you know, think about this. How about, you've seen, I'm sure, numerous stories about how military families, even if they have on-base housing, having to use food stamps to get by. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Something's wrong. And, yeah. it, you know, how come during the pandemic, the top one or 2% increased their wealth? I, you know, mm-hmm. I just, it's just that it's just awful. And I yeah. think that's a huge part of it because there's a context of discontinuing and inflation going to make it worse. And you've had so many food bank places open to or nonprofits. Well, yeah. Same nonprofit. You don't have a lot of money, and if the food's not donated, and apparently the level that is needed is not, what in the hell can they do? And mm-hmm. similarly, if I may, just for a minute, because of the war in Ukraine, the head of the uh, UN food thing that well, that's uh, um, sixty minutes did a wonderful piece, and he said, "So what are you doing now?" He said, "We are taking the food away from the hungry to feed the starving." Jeez, and that is essentially what we may end up doing here. Wow. Yeah. You know, I, I just read that uh, many of the food banks in the D.C. area, now you can choose milk or cheese. You can't have milk and cheese. Yeah. Instead of four cans of vegetables, you can have two cans of vegetables. You can have sugar or flour, but not sugar and flour. Uh, so you go to the food bank to get food and, and you come out and you're still starving. And you have Joe Biden yesterday saying the idea that we're going to be able to quick click a switch, bring down the cost of gasoline is not likely in the near term, nor is it with regard to food. And it's just a real limiting of the political imagination, I think, that has also brought us here. This idea that there is somehow no way to stop people like Jeff Bezos and the rest of the wealthiest Americans uh, from hoarding their immense wealth. And there is also no way of helping the, you know, masses of poor people in this country. There's only no way if you are locked into an incredibly rigid political system that serves the elite at the expense of the wealthy. But that's not it's not the law of the jungle or whatever. You know, like we made this up. We can remake it. It's interesting because uh I go back to uh, one of my professors when I was at Maryland uh, was uh, Charlie Schultz, who'd been the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under Jimmy Carter. And I remember when, when Reagan took over and they were, you know, David Stockman, oh, supply side economics. Arthur right. Laffer, I believe, was the professor from Southern California. Well, it's appropriately named because it's a Laffer. Yeah. The Laffer curve. Laffer curve. Oh, the idea that you lower taxes all the way down and more people, there's investment, and more people go to work and more people pay taxes. It doesn't happen that way. Mm-hmm. One of the great lines, I went to see Schultz at the, at the Brookings talking about this. He says, you know, it, it won't happen overnight. 
we're going to mm-hmm. dig a huge hole because of this. He said, because, you know, it's not like a car dealership where they say, how can our prices be so low? Volume. Doesn't work that way with this. Mm-hmm. And if you both recall, uh, in the in the first term or second term of Ronald Reagan, that he actually had to raise taxes. We were about mm-hmm. to bankrupt. Right. And it doesn't work that way. And what mm-hmm. has happened, I feel, is that the top one, two percent through their money, your their use of money, the Koch brothers, and through targeting elections to get the people they want in there. What's what's the oh uh, tax cuts? That'll get it going. Tax cuts. Yeah. Doesn't work that way. Now, Grover yeah. Grover Norquist. Oh, let's cut you know cut it to the bone. Small government. We're three hundred and thirty million people. You want a small government? Okay, go ahead, Grover. Show me how it works. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely. It right. also seems to me that we have to really. Um, confront this idea that we were all raised with that anyone in the United States, if you're willing to work hard, you can succeed and you can end up living comfortably and happily. Like maybe that was true for a a segment of the population a few decades ago, but it really doesn't feel that way today. And it really reinforces this idea that if you're failing in the U.S., you're not working hard enough. I mean, it, it just that's simply not true. But I think step step one is recognizing that 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 is not true, that like the the way society has evolved over the last several decades has really, you know, smashed that into pieces. Well, it, it, you're right. It's not true. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, the rules have changed and they've been changed dramatically. And, you know, ultimately, um, I remember a discussion we had uh, around the our story conference table at time when the whole. Laffer curve and all that. It, it someone brought up and says, "Isn't it a moral question?" Because morally, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you can believe in the simplistic view. As I sadly say that Ronald Reagan did that—a rising tide lifts all boats. No, it doesn't necessarily. No, it doesn't. Depends mm-hmm. on your circumstances and the conditions that you live under. And it just yeah. doesn't work that way. And I think that's what's happened to so many Americans. Uh, yeah. They have not been lifted up. You know, tax cut after tax cut after tax cut. It doesn't work that way. Because study after study has shown that the uber wealthy, they don't invest their money. They invest it for themselves. And they save it. They're not going to build new companies. It's a rarity that that happens. So that's just my two cents on it. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you may disagree and your listeners may disagree, but, you know. I think I have the numbers to back that up. <laughs> well, and also, you know, you mentioned money in politics, and I, I think this is related to the results from the 2022 Democracy Perceptions Index, which assesses how people rate their own government's democracy. Uh, and it is interesting to see how people respond to their own governments and contrast these results uh, with uh, external media and, and propaganda. So consistent high scorers and perceptions of democracy this year were China, Vietnam and Taiwan. People in those countries were most likely to describe their own countries as free. China, Vietnam and Switzerland had the smallest democracy deficits, which is the gap between people saying democracy is very important and how they assess their levels of democracy. Those gaps were the smallest. And you can... I think understand these results to some degree as a level of satisfaction among people as to how they are being served by their governments. And the United States does not really show up very well in a lot of these polls. More than half of Americans believe their government serves a minority rather than the majority. I think more than half of Americans are absolutely correct on that point. 
Uh, they think we do not have em- enough democracy. I think that is correct. Uh, the U.S. is among the top 10 countries where people say not everyone has the same rights. And, you know, I note this not because the United States is necessarily the worst offender, right? It, it shows up, you know, it shows up reasonably well in some categories, but pretty poorly in other categories. Uh, but I think it's important to point out because it is the United States that is the country among the world's nations that is constantly going to war, right? Declared wars or not uh, in the name of spreading or defending democracy. And that's why I think it's important to go, well, hey, if we are, if we are, you know, killing our own people and other people in the name of spreading this thing and our own people are not even satisfied with what we're getting at home, maybe we should chill out on the international front and figure out democracy here for a little while. Well, I think we believe as a, as a nation in democracy, uh, yeah. but we struggle to, uh, you know, the politicians always talk about uh, having a more perfect union. We're not perfect. And mm-hmm. uh, as long as we're willing to admit that, we'll, we've got, I think, a pretty good mindset. A lot mm-hmm. of people, you know, all American exceptionalism, uh, not when you subjugate Native Americans, not when you enslave people, not when you say all men are created equal and the people who wrote that. I mean, they were people of their time, okay? Mm-hmm. I'm not saying they're horrible human beings. They were people of their time. You have to keep mm-hmm. that in perspective. But at the same time, I, I hear what you're saying about we're going around the, the world saying democracy. Mm-hmm. And I do believe democracy is the best form of government, uh, mm-hmm. personally. But um, you got to work it. You have, you have to show, you know, much, is, much more is learned through your actions of uh, showing democracy, preaching about it. Words can only carry us so far. And I'm not so much about chilling out because it's a dangerous world, but at the same time, uh, I think you have to pick the spot. Yeah. I mean, most of the people, the people are saying in the United States, for example, a lot of people say they think democracy is very important. They just think that ours isn't working very well. And I also want to talk about well, I want to get into some of these other uh, results that I think are really interesting that reflect, you know, different domestic cultures, because I thought it was pretty wild. Thirty two percent of Americans think free speech here is not that free. We are among the top five countries of people complaining about limits on free speech, which is interesting to me because objectively speaking, speech in the United States is pretty free. I mean, I think these respondents are probably responding to our whole you know, discourse about cancel culture right now. But there are lots of places where you can't insult the monarchy, right? You'll go to jail if you step on a picture of the king in Thailand, right? Where you cannot talk about odious politics at all, right? Uh, and so uh, what I think is happening is that Americans have been so separated from the idea that democracy and freedom as concepts have any link with economic freedom or economic power that we imbue other areas of our life with with outsized importance. Right. So in the United States, for example, you know, you can never quit your job for fear you have a health scare that's going to bankrupt you while you're in between insurance or you can't take a vacation because you can't afford it. But damn it. You can get on the radio and say the Queen of England is a lizard person, you know, and that's fine. And I'm not advocating for speech restrictions, uh, but I do think Americans have been very successfully led to think that their be- well-being 
rests on issues like this instead of rests on being able to afford food or being able to buy a house. I I think that is a very clever trick that's been played on Americans. And I I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, I've always believed that uh, economics uh, are clearly tied to uh, democracy. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, no matter what, I mean, wars are fought over economics. Mm -hmm. Uh, World War II started with the Japanese wanting oil and we, Americans cut them off and, you know, they got they started invading countries in the Pacific and bombing Pearl Harbor because of it. And even today, um, my own perception is that because of uh, climate change and drought, you're going to have serious future wars. I hope the hell I'm wrong. Over yeah. Water rights, over food, over agrable land. Yeah. And, but it is tied to not only national security, but international security. You know, part of it is um, the Pope, for example, when he came here and spoke to the Congress, one thing he talked about was the climate change because he he feels that you're going to see these mass migrations, which are going to cause unbelievable suffering mm-hmm. because it's going to be, you know, uh, famines all over the place. It's already occurring in, you know, parts of Southern Africa. And um, look at look at our Southwest alone. Mm-hmm. The water problem in California now. Lake Mead, et cetera. It's yeah. It would be a huge upset. And it is tied to the democracy. It's tied to stability in countries, whether mm-hmm. they're fully democratic or partially democratic or, you know, the 32% doesn't think we have, you know, free speech and so forth. Right. It's all intrinsically tied together. Mm-hmm. Nature always has the final word, as we know. Yeah, I just I think it's remarkable that we have again, I'm not advocating for for speech restrictions or suggesting that it's not important, but we really have like we've just we want to be free. We want to be free to make consumer choices, you know what I mean, <laughs> but not necessarily free to do anything else. And I, I, I think that it's I think that it's really interesting. and I think that it's, uh, you know, a great shame, right, because it helps. Uh, successive administrations just run roughshod over the the well-being of American people. Well, they they certainly, if not address them, they don't don't they ignore them. I don't. Yeah. But that's a, that's a whole separate issue, in my opinion. <laughs> yes, that was political analyst Brian Doyle. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate it. My pleasure. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are going to take a quick break and come right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou. We've got a few more headlines to get to and one last guest conversation that I'm looking forward to. Mm-hmm. Um, but first, John, remember when we were talking about that, uh, the Freedom Convoy that camped out around Ottawa for right. a long time? Oh, yeah. It was a couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, it really made life difficult for Justin Trudeau, really made like life difficult for people in central Ottawa. Right. Um, and w- one of the things that happened as that uh, protest movement was escalating was that banks froze the accounts of mm-hmm. uh, organizers, right? And you also had crowdfunding platforms 
freeze their accounts as well, uh, with initially planning to take the funds that have been raised and distribute them to charity. That was the original plan that came out. And then they said, oh, no, no, we're going to give them back to everybody. We just right. we're not going to let you fund this protest through our business. Mm-hmm. Um, well, now Scotiabank has apologized for the frustration and inconvenience of having frozen bank accounts of clients connected to the Freedom Convoy. So this is according to mm-hmm. emails that one of the convoy's co-organizers uh, has posted. Um, go ahead. But what are they going to do about it? You know, it's it's like what PayPal has done to uh, Consortium News and Mint Press News and the Gray Zone. You freeze the accounts, you freeze the money, and then six months later, you say you're sorry. Okay, you're sorry. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to make this right? Yeah, it is kind of funny. Uh, this the particular particular organizer who had emailed the bank who got this uh, apology in response is saying, I don't believe the banks went out of their way to target clients. I believe it came from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. They didn't do it on their own accord. Okay, yeah, obviously. But just because of the nature of some aspect of this uh, protest, it's like, yeah, but big banks aren't your friend. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? If you're looking at two entities, big financial institutions and the government, and deciding which one is your friend, Mm -hmm. listen, it's, Mm -hmm. it's... also not the banks. Right? Right. It's really yes. like, um, so it's not, oh, oh, the poor banks, they didn't want to do this to their clients, the working man who they intend to uphold and, and protect. Sure. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, that was a really, that was a really um, frightening outcome of that protest. And of course, the, the accounts were frozen. They were released. Uh, they uh, acted, uh, the banks say they acted quickly to unfreeze accounts after the RCMP notified them uh, that the accounts that it froze, the ind- individuals and entities connected to the accounts that they froze were no longer engaged in activities prohibited under emergency measures regulation. So there's no speculation here. They did what the police told them to. Yeah, that was it. Uh, but that is pretty scary. And we have also talked about, you know, the use of this mechanism, freezing bank accounts to coerce people to do what you want to do. We saw that with Seneca Nation in, mm-hmm. in New York, actually, mm-hmm. after this. And so, of course, you know, anytime something like this happens, if it happens to an organization that you disagree with, you sort of, there's a cohort of people who would dismiss it and say, yeah, okay, that's fine. Those guys are, mm-hmm. those guys are jerks. That might be so. But now the tactic is in play, that's right? right? And anybody who is uh, anybody who is causing trouble, whether it's a kind of trouble that you like or in service of something that you like or not, is is susceptible to it. And That's that right. is dangerous. Yeah. Um, I, I do want to get into a few other issues here today, starting with the way we discuss incarceration rates and police brutality, and then also talking about the role international organizations can and can't play when it comes to protecting indigenous rights and indigenous nations. Mm-hmm. Joining us for this conversation is John Kane. He's a Mohawk activist and educator. He's producer and host of the Let's Talk Native podcast and co-host of Resistance Radio on WBAI Pacifica in New York. John, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me again. I wanted to start uh, with the way we talk about incarceration and police brutality, particularly when we start to break things down by race. Uh, you had this chart by Prison Policy. It was being reshared recently. It's from the end of last year, showing the steady and pretty remarkable increase in incarceration rates of Native Americans. Uh, it says the Native jail population is up a shocking 85 percent 
since 2000. And that figure does not include those held in Indian country jails, which is to say jails on tribal lands. The number of people in those jails increased by 61 percent between 2000 and 2018. Meanwhile, the total population of Native people on tribal lands, living on tribal lands, has actually decreased a little bit over the same time period. Uh, so prison policy says they've concluded that the U.S. is criminalizing Native people at ever-increasing rates. These figures are from 2019 and 2020, and so they don't reflect the sudden little bump in the Native population that uh, the last census showed. But the increase is steady. Native women are particularly overrepresented. And the article notes that this issue tends to get lost because Native people are often lumped into the racial category of other. I think it can also get lost because, you know, when you are talking about a sort of issue that's being brought to light, by one specific set of circumstances and you try to say, hey, this is happening to other populations as well. You know, uh, the example that came to mind was trying to talk about the extermination of the Roma during the Holocaust. Uh, But also when you're trying to talk about police terror visited on Native Americans, uh, it can be perceived as trying to create a sort of oppression Olympics or as an attempt to say somehow the other groups are are overstating things or not important. But obviously, that is not what we are trying to do, right? And I do think it's important to be able to talk about that. Well, I I want to ask you, how how important is it to pull these figures out of the other category? Well, it's really important because, you know, there's two things at play here. There's one, the numbers are shocking if you look at them as a percentage of our population. Yeah. But because our population is so small... Those yeah. total numbers seem, you know, negligible. I mean, at, right. in, in the overall scheme of things, it's easy to ignore when yeah. you're talking about uh, hundreds or thousands as opposed to thousands or tens of thousands. And so yeah. the, the the total numbers get lost. I, you know, I, I oftentimes bring up the fact that Native people uh, experience death by cop at the highest rate as a percentage of our population of yeah. any of any other group only in the and look again i don't want to I, I i almost hate that expression the uh, oppression olympics because anytime you, you try to bring up these numbers that are comparative you get oh well yeah you're just bringing that up but yeah you, only in the in the in the uh, demographics of 16 to 21 do do black males um die at a higher rate than the native the native males do i mean so yeah. I mean, but these numbers get lost because of our to- our total uh, numbers are, are so small. And, and I'll tell yeah. you, you mentioned the the bump in the uh, in our population yeah. as of uh, as per the the 2020 uh, census. I mean, the problem with that is that it isn't just a small bump. That, that according to the census, our our population increased by 87 percent, which is oh, impossible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's it. so what it is is you know when when we talk about again being a negligible population mm-hmm. that gets further erased by other people claiming our ancestry yeah you know more often than not absolutely falsely doing so so you know that means that the people who are really native people the people who are living the culture the people who are living either in a mm-hmm. territory or on a, in a community or or are part of a community our numbers become even more meaningless because you now all of a sudden you're, you're going to throw a bunch of people who just claim to have some form of family lore claiming uh, native ancestry and it just right. it totally screws up up the numbers but i'll tell you yeah. the numbers you're talking about it's it's actually even worse on the canadian side and and i have to mention that because as as a mohawk 
you know, my people are on both sides of this imaginary line that white people drew and mm-hmm. and native women represent an, an incredibly disproportionate um, percentage of the prison population on the Canadian side. So it's mm-hmm. a it's a thing that native people in on Turtle Island, North America, experience at a rate that is that is really um I mean, considering that we were once the, the 100% of the population and now yeah. we're like less than 1% of the population. Um, and and those numbers, when you look at the percentage of our population that gets imprisoned or, or killed by cops or whatever else, those numbers should be even more frightening because it, it, it actually starts to approach extinction levels at, um, even today. So this isn't a genocide of 200 years ago or 100 years ago. This isn't residential schools. This is the stuff that's happening today. It sort of feels it feels a little bit like a a tip of the spear situation. You know what I mean? And yeah, I think it gets lost because the total numbers are are so small and because of this, you know, pernicious sort of other categorization. But, you know, it's when we are talking about police brutality against, uh, you know, against any minority group, it's still it's a result of settler colonialism. You know what I mean? So it's just to say, yeah, hey, here's what happens. Here is what happened to the the first group of people that were encountered here and what continues to happen to everyone. But the sort of settlers at the highest level. Can, can I bring thing, something up? Can I bring up something up before you before we shift gears too much? Uh, in your previous segment, you mentioned the Seneca Nation and what New York State did to Seneca Nation and how it's easy to, again, other group. Uh, other uh, otherize somebody. You know, an interesting thing happened with this uh, with this tragedy that took place in Buffalo several weeks ago with this uh, this white supremacist racist going in and killing uh, people in a predominantly black neighborhood. You know, we we understand that racism manifests itself in hate and violence. But it also if we only limit racism to to that, and we ignore everything else. I'll give you an example. A bunch of Seneca counselors went to Albany uh, uh, to to address New York State legislators over what is look looks like it's probably going to be a, a particularly tough uh, compact negotiation for their gaming going forward next year. Mm-hmm. And when the idea that that revenue sharing and and the, what the governor Gover- governor Kathy Hochul did to the Senecas was racist. The one woman who stood out and was pissed was Crystal Peoples-Stokes. And she's the majority leader of the state assembly. And she told Seneca counselors, how dare you bring up racism after what happened to my people? And it's like, because of what happened in Buffalo to to that black community. And I'll tell you, this is a Democrat. Her people Mm -hmm. are Democrats. They're, they're white people, too. They aren't just black people. So when, Mm -hmm. when I hear some elected leader stand up and say, my people. So are you just missing all the white people that voted for you since most of most of what you got you elected was actually white people, not black people? I mean, mm-hmm. I hear this thing. And, and this is when you, we, we get into this oppression Olympics because mm-hmm. because of this heinous thing that happened in this community where 10 people, 10 black people were, were killed. We're going to ignore that Kathy Hochul strangled six or eight thousand Senecas and all of the employees of the Seneca Nation to, mm-hmm. to really demonstrate what I think is a bigger demonstration of white supremacy than uh, than a, a, a perpetrator of a hate crime because she's mm-hmm. demonstrating the power not only of white people but the power of black people supporting white people doing it to to people like the Senecas. So I, I had to throw that in there. No, I mean it's 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 really unfortunate that a lot of conversations about sort of race and racism a lot they're used so much as a there's such a useful political lever 
that it, it obscures the larger reality and like the larger truth of it. And it is very and we won't identify what racism is. Racism isn't just violence and hate. It is that. Yeah. But it's yeah. also the 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 demonstration of power that you have over a marginalized group. And that's what yeah. Kathy Hochul demonstrated. And that's what Crystal People Stokes demonstrated mm-hmm. in her support for Kathy Hochul in doing so. The other thing that was interesting about these uh, these numbers is that this this upward tw- trend in incarceration of Native people over the last 20 years, it, it seems to stand alone, right? I took a look at other uh, other trends and the overall incarceration rate, uh, at least over the past 10 years, has kind of gone down. Uh, trends for other ethnic groups, when you break them out, they're kind of all over the place. They're up, they're down, whatever. I mean, incarceration is a is a huge problem across the board for non-white people in the United States. But it does seem like uh, this steady two-decade rise in uh, Native among Native Americans is a standout. And I wonder if you have any explanation for that. Well, I mean, I, I got, got I just have to say it. a lot of these arrests are are, are directly related to people standing up. Yeah. I mean, and we are standing up against oppression. We are yeah. standing up against enviro- environmental degradation. We are standing up uh, against a lot of these things. And of course, we get criminalized for that. We get prosecuted for that. We get jailed for that. We get set up for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think people forget sometimes that that whole Standing Rock thing, the one person who who served the most time was Red Fawn because a FBI informant handed her his gun and set her up to get uh, to get a weapons charge. So, I mean, it's this is how ugly, you know, the the relationship is between native people and the so-called Justice Department. I mean, it is there's something maybe that's heartening about, you know, thinking this is happening because there has been more resistance. I mean, that's not. It's uh, terrible and tragic what how the resistance is being met, but uh, it seems like you know. I, I mean, that's the only way you can go, right? Is to continue resisting. Well, it, it isn't just standing up, though. It is criminalization. Look, I, I'm going to mm-hmm. tell you, I I did time. I did time standing up for native sovereignty and and not necessarily for environmental degradation, but standing up to assert. Mm-hmm our distinction. And, and, and I've seen a lot of people go through, go through situations like this and it isn't yeah. just the Leonard Peltiers it's a, uh, or the red fawns. It's, it's people who are just trying to get through life, but it's, yeah. it's so easy to criminalize people. And look, just like they've done with, and, I, and I'm not trying to compare native people with the mentally ill, but mm-hmm. I mean, just, just the idea of, of incarcerating people when you don't know what else to do with them. Mm-hmm. And that's, mm-hmm. and I think we fall into that category. Well, let's stick in the United States real quick uh, for the next topic, because then I want to get to some more international philosophical level stuff. Uh, But we've talked about this a little bit uh, more in the past, John, and also sort of raised about that census bump. Uh, But the Minnesota Chippewa tribe is going to ask its members later this month whether to amend a decades old blood quantum criteria for tribal membership. Right now, membership in the Six Nation tribe requires a minimum of 25 percent Minnesota Chippewa Indian blood, which, of course, is a rule that was imposed by the U.S. federal government specifically to reduce the native population or or who would be considered native, which I think is something that kind of gets gets lost. Um, so now you have just 15 percent of Minnesota, Minnesota Chippewa membership, which is about 40,000 people. They are under 18. And that figure is so low 
directly as a result of this blood quantum rule, because you might have two parents who are both tribal members who are, uh, you know, living on tribal land or not, but have a child who is being raised by these parents within this culture. But because of this uh, blood quantum threshold that's been imposed on it, it is not considered uh, Minnesota Chippewa. Uh, And so it really is an insidious way of gradually eliminating the idea of anyone being native. And I I think, one, that it is not really often recognized as such. Um, But, you know, it it is interesting that you have movements to do away with blood quantum at the same time as you do have a phenomenon of of people finding it um, useful or romantic to claim a heritage that they don't really have. And so, uh, you know, there's an interesting contrast there. And I, I wonder I wonder what you think a change like this would mean. Well, I mean, we do get into this this debate over what um, what do you use for criterion to call yourself um, a Chippewa? And and of course, we use words like membership, like it's like it's a club or something. We don't use words like citizenship or we don't. I mean, I don't even like the word citizenship because it has a political connotation to it. I'm Mohawk. I'm not a citizen of the Mohawk Nation. I am Mohawk. Gunyagahaga. That's what I am. And, you know, so. So do we go by blood quantum? And, and at some point, is it going to be DNA testing because of the accuracy of record keeping and that kind of stuff? Of course, this is this is a has always been a slippery slope. And of course, if you make life on native territory almost unbearable or unlivable because of poverty, abject poverty, then you drive your people off the territory, and then now they're in a in a uh, in a population where they are very much in the, in a minority, and the likelihood of them. Uh, you know, raising a family with a, with another Chippewa or Mohawk or whomever is is unlikely. And you know, so this is the policy isn't just the the blood quantum itself. It's it's what are, where are you driving the native people to? You, you mentioned in the in the first segment that um, that the population of native people on native territory is actually decreasing. Well, look, that's what poverty does when when you don't see any prospect for the future living within your own native community then you're going to venture out. And when you venture out, the the likelihood of you raising a native family within the native culture and then coupling with with a native uh, mate, soulmate, you know, know, parenting or whatever, it becomes even less likely. So this is driven by a couple of things, uh, not just the blood quantum itself, but blood quantum is a really definitive way for people to just erase people. Yeah, it's such a, and I mean, again, every time we talked about this, you know, it's important to say none of this would be necessary. <laughs> none of this would be necessary uh, if we did not have the colonial past that we have, right? And so figuring out, you know, the, this is trying to figure out uh, how, what is, uh, what is native identity uh, in a context where, you know, it's been imposed like you would for for dogs and horses for decades and decades. And now, you know, like, uh, it, establishing or maintaining any level of of sovereignty is a constant struggle. And so, yeah, it's a bunch of philosophical questions that are being raised because of uh, hundreds of years of crimes. I think it's important to keep it in that context. Well, it's also interesting that when you you juxtapose this against the one drop rule that was used Mm -hmm. to, you know, to essentially oppress uh, anybody with any black heritage. um, It's Mm -hmm. it's even it's even more ludicrous when you when you think about it in, in those terms. I want to ask uh, about the role of international organizations when it comes to uh, protecting or upholding indigenous rights 
In May, a coalition of Mayan groups and the International Indian Treaty Council appealed to a number of UN groups, including the UN Special Rapporteur in the Field of Cultural Rights, UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Religion or Belief, and the UN Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, Uh, The appeal was to help these groups challenge a bill in the Guatemalan parliament that they say will cause the dispossession, privatization and economic exploitation of thousands of ceremonial centers and other elements of Mayan heritage. And I wanted to ask, you know, what role international organizations could possibly play as avenues of aid or redress for indigenous people? Um, you know, on, on one hand, I think it seems silly to ignore the incredible influence the United States has over the UN or, you know, the U.S. being a a settler colonial state with a very poor record of its own regarding indigenous people. But on the other hand, you know, in the UN are are governments that are not colonial governments and the UN has at least attempted to get world governments to recognize the rights of their indigenous populations. Uh, And so I, I wonder what you think of attempting to to bring organizations like the UN to to try to exert some influence on on national issues as they relate to indigenous people of different nations? Well, I think it would be great, but, but I have to be, you know, completely honest, the role of international, uh, you know, organizations, including the UN to address indigenous issues in the United States and Canada has been absolutely meaningless. It it has had no effect whatsoever. I mean, let's be clear. The UN in 2007, uh, they, they did, they, they passed through their, their general assembly the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Four countries voted against it, the United States, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. And even when Obama- I mean, what? No, they what voted against it. Yeah, yeah, no, just outrageous. And, yeah, and, and, and when Obama was president, he said, well, let's clear the slate and take another look at this thing. Yeah. And, and I actually went to Washington. I was a part of um, you know, a, a bunch of us that went there to, um, uh, to not only meet at the State Department to discuss the UN Declaration, but uh, but to do a kind of an open, more of an open forum meeting that was actually held at the museum in uh, the Native American Museum, mm-hmm. and yeah, and and it was real clear that the United States wasn't going to give a whole lot of ground. And when and when they were when they were flat out asked, why did you vote against it in 2007? Because now it's 2010. Yeah. And um and they said, well, the fear was that it would change international law. And and so when Obama finally made some sort of acknowledgement and basically what he said that he supported the aspiration of the declaration, mm-hmm. provided it doesn't conflict with U.S. law. Well, that's the problem. The problem is the United States doesn't meet what and, and this document, this this U.N. Uh, declaration of the rights of indigenous peoples, it says right in it that it's the minimum standard. Yes. And the United States doesn't meet the minimum standard. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's uh, what is uh, strung throughout the document is this is the need for free prior and informed consent yeah. from native people, indigenous people to, to address any number of things, not just redress, but even to, to address things like uh, that would have impact on native people mm-hmm. on or off there, even if it's off territory, if it's uh, if it's if it's affecting water rights or mm-hmm. grazing rights, you know, whatever it is. And the United States still will not accept this standard of free prior and informed consent. Mm-hmm. They'll throw words like cons- consultation. In fact, that's what Obama said. Well, I'm I'm issuing an executive order that says any executive branch uh, policy that has impact on native people um, requires consultation. Well, you know, consultation is box checking. 
Yeah. It's not the same thing as getting consent from us. So, look, I, I'm really frustrated because I don't think that we as indigenous people, native people, use the um, the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples enough to mm -hmm. cite how often the U.S. and Canada do stand in stark violation of that agreement. Mm -hmm. But even when you cite it, and it's one of these crazy things, here the, the Supreme Court will use things like church dogma Right. Like the doctrine of Christian discovery, which has which should have no foundation in law, and yet they'll reject. Well, we're not going to consider uh, some UN proclamation, some UN, yeah. de UN declaration. So they can dismiss these international standards when it's inconvenient to them, but they'll uh, but they can embrace things like the doctrine of Christian discovery. Um, even even folks like you know the liberal darling Ruth Bader Ginsburg cited the doctrine of Christian mm -hmm. discovery against against Native people. Mm -hmm. I mean, so I mean, it, I think the international community has had um, some impact in other places. But you you were right to mention the the un you know balanced uh, power that the United States has in in the uh, in the United Nations, and so they're never going to be held account. Anytime there's ever talk about trying to put some bite to the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Right now, it is it is just an aspirational uh, you know, declaration. Yeah. Nobody's ever held account for violating Native people, and, and certainly the United States is. And you know, even just watching how they're tap dancing around this uh, with Deb Hallam's report on residential schools. Mm -hmm. I mean, she threw a number of 500 confirmed grave sites. Are you freaking kidding me? Mm -hmm. You know, multiply that by about 100, and, and you, you may get somewhere close to the number of children who died in those schools. And yeah. you know what? Those are the ones who died completely. Every child died some Ugh. because that was the goal. Kill the Indian, save the man. Yeah, I think that's that's so important to remember. Well, uh, not a great note to end on, John, but that is all the time we have. That was John Kane. You can hear him on the Let's Talk Native podcast and on Resistance Radio on WBAI Pacifica Radio New York. Uh, thanks again for joining us, John. We always appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to slide in a couple last headlines. John, have you got anything or do you want me to tell you what's uh, No, I'd love to hear what you have to say. We, they're just a couple of stories about Amazon uh, that caught my eye. One is that there's been a new complaint filed by the National Labor Relations Board uh, against the JFK workhouse, the JFK 8 warehouse in Staten Island. Uh, saying management illegally threatened employees with loss of benefits and with withholding or reduced wages if they voted to unionize. My God. That was done over a period of about a year prior to the vote in April, which the union won, right? But really, uh, I think, shed some light on how, just how difficult it is to win those votes against Amazon um, and just how hard that, that hard fought and hard won that victory was. Uh, also... Uh, you have this new story in The Intercept. Amazon uh, was planning to ban words related to labor unions in its new internal messaging app. You were not going to be allowed to write the word union. You weren't going to be allowed to write any other term that might be used in organizing. Uh, today, a bunch of Democratic members of Congress sent a letter to Amazon demanding answers about the app. Uh, so, you know. Another example of Democrats demanding answers, but maybe this is a, a prelude <laughs> to actual action. We'll see. I think I saw another Amazon story about labor conditions floating around, but we are going to have to get to that one next tomorrow. week. Oh, next week. That's yeah. right. We're off tomorrow. There's no show tomorrow. No show tomorrow, but we will be back to talk to all of you on Monday. I want to say, as always, thanks to all of our guests. 
Thanks to the engineers and producers who make this show possible. And on behalf of Jean Kiriakou, who is already smiling, looking ahead to this long, to long weekend. Yes. And myself, Michelle Witte. Thanks to you for listening. We will see you on Monday. Monday.